this is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains and globalization and the effects these developments have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent times. Today I'm joined by three colleagues of mine from the supply chain special interest group of the Society for the Advancement of Consulting. So we have David Ogilvy, uh, principal of David Ogilvy uh, Associates in Brisbane, Australia. Welcome, David. Hi, Patrick. It's easy for you to say. <laughs> Diane Garcia, um, principal of Lorraine Consulting, Portland, Oregon, soon to be in Phoenix, Arizona, I think. Is that right, Diane? That is right, yep. Okay, and and Elizabeth Warren joining us uh, from Los Angeles, California, and she is a CEO of Dialed In uh, Consultants. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Patrick. Good to see everyone. So um, I was struck today, we, we, we have uh, family phone calls here. So we're an international family here at, at home. My wife comes from Spain and she has um, an uncle who lives in France who uh, emigrated to France many, many years ago. And for the last three years, maybe three and a half years, we've been trying to get together and we haven't been able to for one reason or another. So one year it was family illness and then it was COVID and then it was, uh, uh, well, we have the war now. So we've, we've made plans to go to France to see them uh, this summer, but we're kind of tentative and we're saying, well, hopefully everything will work out and we get, we get to see each other. And we were talking to him this evening, the uncle in France, and he was saying just some years ago, you could easily make plans for, for next year, or for the year after, maybe a couple of years out. And it seems that today you can't make plans even for 10 days in the, in the future. Uh, so every plan is tentative uh, at, at, at this time. But it also struck me that when things are so uh, turbulent and so unstable, there's always a lot of opportunity. Um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity in the current situation. And on recent episodes, we've spoken a lot about the problems and we've spoken about the the threats and what companies are doing and so on. But what what are the opportunities? So I see that there's two very big countries are embroiled in, in this big time. So we have Russia that's embroiled itself uh, in a war, and we have China that has taken an approach to COVID, the zero COVID approach that is leading to um, lockdowns, continuous lockdowns, and even now, two years after the start of uh, COVID, we have large parts of the Chinese economy um, shut down. So I'm interested to know what you think about what opportunities does does that um, present? So um, in terms of your own areas of specialization, so roughly speaking, uh, Diane, in terms of manufacturing, um, Lisa, maybe in terms of uh, shipping and ports and logistics, and David in terms of, of technology. So um, if, if I go to you first, um, David, and maybe talk about China, which is perhaps closer to where, where you are in, in Australia, this approach of China to uh, COVID, what kind of opportunities do you see that opening up um, in your part of the world and other parts of the world? Well, Patrick, they, they've obviously uh, are no longer the reliable supplier that they have been for a long time. 
And obviously, reliability is very important to, to all of the manufacturers and dis distributors in, in the country. Uh, so I think the opportunity really sits in the country being able to rebuild our manufacturing capability, uh, bring some of those uh, processes back home um, and become um, a more self-reliant co uh, country, uh, so to speak. So I, I think that's probably the biggest um, opportunity that's available. Obviously, that opportunity comes with a significant number of challenges that need to be overcome in order for it to, to be realised. Um, but I think that's probably our biggest biggest opportunity. Mm. So in Australia, um, over the years, as a, a commodities uh, producer, do you think do you think there's been a complacency in Australia to focus on that aspect as against maybe being a manufacturing economy, or is it still does it still have that manufacturing capability? that it's probably going to need now to, to recover if it doesn't have it? Well, we don't have it now. We've lost a lot of skills over the time, uh, and, that, and that started particularly when we lost our own um, vehicle manufacturing <clears throat> in the country. Okay. Uh, but, yes, we are basically a big quarry in many respects, and we don't do any value-added um, activities around uh, the commodities that we've got. Uh, you know, with the markets being so strong at the moment, particularly in in, in uh, grain commodities, those sorts of things, there are there are uh, lots of companies that are doing very well. A lot of the mining companies are doing well. Um, uh, the wheat growers and so forth are getting good good money for their for their uh, for their harvest. I, I can't see that changing anytime soon because both Russia and Ukraine are, are big uh, wheat producers and so forth. So you know. We're really in a box seat in many ways, um, uh, in Australia. Um, they call us the lucky country for a reason. I think we are extraordinarily fortunate uh, in so many ways. Um, but, yes, I do believe that it's built a, a complacency uh, to some extent in the manufacturing space. Mm. Um, we do have a lot of work to catch up. Okay. Uh, Diana, then, opportunity. So you're West, West Coast US, which is is Pacific Rim. So, you know, you're, you're, you're very much looking uh, at Asia across the Pacific Ocean. And China now has become, as David highlighted, maybe not as reliable as people used to think it was going to be and going to continue to be. So what kind of opportunities do you see arising from this turbulence and instability? Well, I think innovation and continued innovation, I, I see that, like you were mentioning, we, we we can't even plan out 10 days, I think, was the time frame that you were dealing with. And yeah, we're seeing the same thing here in, in the U.S. and with my manufacturing clients, you know, trying to plan their operations and, and rely on labor that perhaps uh, it's it's no longer the same. Perhaps you thought you would have a full crew for the week or the month and plans continuously change. So I, I think it's innovating new ways of doing things and, and how do we like work with this new landscape that kind of has unfolded very, very quickly in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that's probably the biggest opportunity that I'm seeing. And, and like David mentioned, you know, opportunity to bring uh, manufacturing suppliers closer to customers. So here in North America, uh, we have uh, lots and lots of of customer demand here. So I see uh, opportunity for bringing in um, supply chains to support that. 
Okay, so is, does that mean we'll start to see things that are manufactured in Asia actually being manufactured in the in the United States? Maybe maybe with automation or what? what, what I, I was going to say I think when when you combine that with other with other uh, you know uh, ac actions here, so it's not just as simple as saying bring it back. It's it has to be combined with automation and innovation and new ways of doing things. But yeah, I see that potential. And I also see potential for not within the US, but perhaps Mexico, you know, things that are closer. And given prices that have increased along the supply chain, you know, it's starting to make more sense to bring that closer. Yeah, I've, it was interesting. I saw an article recently in McKinsey, and they were talking about the apparel supply chain and the possibility of there being a kind of reconfiguration of an apparel supply chain to supply North America, but from Latin America. And they were talking about countries such as Honduras and El Salvador as being places where uh, garment manufacture might, might repatriate itself from, from Asia. So that's, that's an, interesting, an interesting development. Um, have you, well, those have you, countries need to invest in infrastructure and those sorts of things, then, Patrick, because that's generally the biggest um, hurdle to that happening. It's true. Also, I, I guess the uh, security situation in some of those countries. I know my own son um, travelled to uh, Central America a couple of years ago, and some of the countries are more stable than others. So he 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 went from Mexico. Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, Nicaragua, and and some of those countries are quite unstable and and um, not particularly um, not particularly safe. So I guess that's another aspect they need to they need to work on. Ninety three point nine, Dublin South FM. You guys in in California, what 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 are you seeing in that respect with regard to Latin America and U.S. trade? Is that something that's that's increasing that business people are looking at more carefully now. But I, I can't speak about the Latin American trade market um, at this time, but you asked about um, the opportunities and some of the opportunities that I see coming up are developing platforms for data sharing, because that is something that we have struggled with in the supply chain industry is to find ways to share that data uh, in a way that is, uh, that uh, the, all the partners trust each other uh, in a way that uh, the, the different parties uh, are, are willing to put information out there and not develop their own uh, internal proprietary system. So I think that having a, a platform Develop. Now, this, it's going to be long term. We don't see anything like this happening immediately, although there are a few platforms out there currently being used. I've spoken about the Port of Los Angeles's platform um, on previous uh, podcasts, um, but there are others that are in the works, and uh, certainly other regions are considering that as well. So data sharing is uh, in order to have further collaboration is important. Um, and I, I think that developing talent is something that we desperately need to do here in the US. We have a, a lot of vacancies in employment 
Um, we have a lot of labor shortages that uh, throughout different segments of the supply chain. So I think that developing that talent uh, is an opportunity for us as well. Um, one of the things I, I'm a little more bearish on versus bullish is um, manufacturing coming back to the U.S. only for the reason of the energy um, the, and the environmental components of that. Uh, I've worked for the past few decades on um, collaborations with uh, the environmental groups versus uh, the industry and trying to find that common ground uh, is it, it kind of comes and goes. So right now our administration has uh, a supply chain resilience uh, um, uh, initiative and uh, trying to find ways to bring that domestic production. However, we don't have enough energy and we, we're not finding um, enough energy sources to replace fossil fuels uh, in a reliable manner. Um, and then as David said, we need to build the infrastructure to support that. Um, one of the challenges that we've had with the, the war in Ukraine is that they are a, uh, one of the major suppliers of nickel, which is used in batteries. And we've had a lot of manufacturing hiccups in, um, with uh, cars and you know, the automotive and, and other technical uh, industries because of the shortage of batteries and, and um, nickel and other uh, precious metals like that. So if we can find a way to replace those, if we can find a way to get more energy and we can get that talent, then I, I think there's a lot of opportunities out there. Mm -hmm. I would add one other thing too there, Patrick, is the, is the cost of that energy, not only the availability, but the, the cost of that energy. I think that's probably the biggest impediment to any nearshoring or reshoring. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a strange thing. That, so this uh, energy crunch is really being felt here in Europe at the moment, um, because as you know, certain countries, particularly uh, Germany, um, Italy to a certain extent, Hungary and some of the Eastern European countries are very, very reliant on Russian oil and gas. And uh, there are moves afoot now to uh, impose an embargo on Russian oil and, and Russian gas. So uh, in some ways, uh, the 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 energy transition may be may be threatened by that because that will drive people to put their hand on easily uh, accessible other sources of fossil fuels, maybe out of the U the US and Canada um, with uh, shale oil and so on and gas. Um, but on the other hand, it may accelerate uh, the transition to uh, renewables. So what would be what would be your own thoughts on whether that's an opportunity or a, or, or a threat to, to the economy? Is it, has it kind of thrown a spanner in the works of the, of the energy transition, or is it going to be an actual catalyst for the energy transition? What, what, what do you think, Diane, what's your opinion? Well, I think either way, prices will remain high. I mean, no matter, no matter how we go through the next year, two years, three years, 10 years, uh, we'll see prices remain high. And especially if we have the U.S. having to dip in or, or share um, as countries, like you said, try to change course here. But 
Um, I do. I, I think that it will somewhat become a catalyst for for change. I, I think there's a lot of uh, hurdles like Elizabeth was listing out, you know, labor and talent and infrastructure. I mean, we have a lot of, of things that would have to align and take place. So I, I think it's easier said than done. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it will help push it in that direction. It, it just it takes the innovation. It takes the motivation for us for it to move forward. Yeah. Well, what, what I'm often uh, struck by, uh, and perhaps you guys see this uh, with clients as well, is how much inefficiency there actually is. And uh, when you're working with a client, um, obviously you have you have to focus on what the particular uh, issue at hand is, but there's lots of other things going on um, around the place. So I wonder whether this uh, expensive energy may be an opportunity in driving some of the inefficiencies out of business that people have been overlooking because they're kind of going, well, you know, it's not really a big issue right now. Um, do you think? Do you think there's there's something in that, David? Um. Yes, yes, and no, Patrick. Uh, I, often I've said on on our podcast that you know sometimes um, I think the principles of business one hundred and one apply, and there are a lot of companies around who don't even do the basics correctly. Um, you know, and if there hasn't been an, an incentive for them to fix that before, what is going to change to make them do that now? Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of talk about. <laughs> zombie companies um, being protected over COVID because the governments have, have put forward all of this money to help businesses stay stay afloat and keep people employed and all that sort of sort of businesses <clears throat> when in fact from a very you know harsh economic point of view potentially they should have failed so um, you know I, I just don't know that the motivation is there to be quite frank okay um yeah, another another aspect of this, and an interesting article I read recently, again in in McKinsey, they are forecasting that there's going to be uh, the mother of all capital investment um, tsunamis uh, coming at us, and and part of that is to do with the uh, energy transition that the global economy is going to go through. Um, so they're talking about a, a an investment wave of something in the order of $130 trillion over the next number of years. That's, that's, that's massive. I, you know, I don't know. The US uh, GDP is something like, I don't know, is it some 14, 15, 16 trillion uh, dollars per annum. Imagine a, a, an investment wave of $130 trillion. So what, what, what do you think of the, um, the uh, opportunities and threats uh, associated with a, a development like that. What, what, what do you think, Elizabeth? Uh, the ports need some upgrading, right? Well, certainly that is um, an issue that we've been dealing with here in California for quite some time. Uh, and recently, our governor, Gavin Newsom, had an executive order that uh, said in California, by 2035, all vehicles sold will be zero emission vehicles. And when you look at the population of California, I don't have the number of new vehicles that are bought in California each year, but we have over 30 million uh, residents. So you know, there's quite a, quite a large number of cars in California. When you look at by 2035, that's only 13 years from now. 
So in order to have all of the vehicles in California to be zero emission, plus the infrastructure in place and the energy to power all of those cars, that is a, a very uh, steep hill to climb. I think it's I think it will be doable, but certainly the um, investment is going to be huge uh, and um, also the technology to ramp up to that level is going to have to be huge as well. Um, some of the other issues that we are looking at is, is how to electrify our ports. And that is something that we've been discussing also for probably more than 15 years. And when you look at the power grid that's needed for that, it's massive. We're already having brownouts around the country in the US. So now when you start adding that level of, of, of energy requirement and electricity requirement on top of that, you know, where is it going to come from? How is it going to be reliable? And how is that, where is that cost going to come from? And who's going to pay for it? We're all going to pay for it, the end user, but that just means more and more cost. Uh, you know, prices will keep going up. So yeah, there's a yeah. lot of opportunities, but then there's also a lot of challenges. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It is an unusual time. So, like some people compare, and some of us are old enough to remember the 1970s, um, which was a terrible time, uh, as I remember it, where we had uh, high inflation, uh, high unemployment high costs and it seemed we were we were stuck in a in a uh, in a vicious circle that we couldn't get out of and now we have high inflation again but we have all of this technology that makes us much more flexible and we has, have all of these things to get done but it seems that the problem that's driving the inflation is perhaps the shortage of of resources so we don't have the skills uh, to get it done. We maybe don't yet have the technology to, to get it done. So it's a kind of a strange period and it's not quite clear whether it's a period of, of great opportunity or a period of great threat or the two things at the one time. What's your, what's your perspective on it, Diane? Well, I read about the 1970s in my history book, so. <laughs> you're, young enough, you're young enough not to remember. <laughs> no, I, I, it's an interesting question. I do, I do think, Patrick, you're right. Uh, what, what is the real cause, and and uh, do we see see hope? You know, in a short period since this came on so quickly, or or you know, things have just been layered on top of of each other. Uh, in the last two years, two and a half years, it seems like. So uh, I, I think it's probably here to stay for a while. We're going to be dealing with this turbulence. I think there's more turbulence to come, which unfortunately, uh, you know, we're as supply chain professionals, we all have been using the word disruption over and over and over recently. I think there's still more disruption here to come. And um like you mentioned, the skills gap, that's a huge, huge gap to overcome. And I don't think that companies are, are still doing enough to, to help fill that gap. So I think we're, we're going to continue to see this problem. Yeah, it's a strange, it's a strange one because my recollection of the 1970s was massive unemployment um, here in Ireland. And we had a wave of emigration where young people would 
go to college and literally leave the country the day they they graduated. But today it's different. Everybody's got signs up. Everybody's hiring. Everybody's looking looking for people. So it's a different it's a different challenge uh, this time around. So David, uh, we're coming to the end now. So I'll I'll leave the last word with you. What how do you think this uh, period of inflation we're in compares to the period in the 1970s and what opportunities do you see now that didn't exist back then? Um, Patrick, I'm, I'm, I'm upset that you think that I was old enough to, to remember the 1940s. <laughs> I think we're maybe of a, I don't know, maybe of a slightly younger vintage, but there's not really that much in it. There's not that much in it. So, you know, obviously uh, my background uh, comes from from family business and and my folks were in a business back in the 70s. And I do recall one of the benefits that uh, that my dad got uh, from the the inflation of the 70s was uh, repaying his loan with 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 inflated money. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was a huge and it's actually uh, uh, something that he used uh, either (laughs) cleverly or by default. <clears throat> but he 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 used that to his advantage, and I still think there are opportunities there in inflationary environments. I think you're 100 right. There's a lot of talk that we may be in for some stagflation, like we had in the 70s. Where, but I, I just think the the mechanics or the or the ingredients are different. Um, you you quite rightly say the demand is there. This is a supply <clears throat> supply driven inflationary period. Like I mean, if 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 um, we didn't have COVID and we didn't have factories closing down and we didn't have ports that were closed. Um, we would be able to, we, we would have been continuing. Yeah. Um, so, so, so you're right. I think the, the, the fundamentals are different this time around. Um, where looking into my crystal ball, that's that's something I'm not really prepared to do. I just, I really honestly can't make an assessment about what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, it is. A, it is a kind of time for. Keeping your investments open, um, keeping yourself um, agile and able to kind of turn on a dime as uh, the situation changes. But I guess, as you say, and you say it again and again, the fundamentals of business don't change. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Hundred percent. And it's just the, the the outside. It's like a sailor, I guess. You know, the the the, the wind changes, and you have got to use your 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 boat and your sail in different ways to navigate the different winds that are blowing. And and running the business is no different in many respects. Yeah. Um, so you know, it just gives us again another. Um, uh, Elizabeth mentioned it before. Great opportunities to get um, digital platform, platforms and and systems working together to help um, improve the velocity and the visibility of information. If we can improve how visible information is and the speed at which it travels through the supply chain, we are significantly better off than we were if if that wasn't occurring. Yeah, it's a good it's a good analogy. Maybe the one of the uh, the, the navigator of a sail ship. You know, you have to be looking at everything that's going on minute to minute and making your decisions uh, in, in response to that. So you may have a strategy and that you're going to, you're going to a certain port, but on your way to that port, you're going to have to use um, different tactics all along the way to get there. Let, let me ask you this, Patrick, when was the last time any of your clients did a cost of serve analysis on their customers? Yeah, maybe, maybe never in many cases, maybe never. Um, and I think in this current environment, that's going to become critical understanding who your profitable companies are. Yeah, yeah, good point, good point. 
So, uh, you know, guys, we could, as always, we could go on for uh, on and on forever and ever, but the, the clock has uh, beaten us yet again. So uh, thank you all for being here. Thank you, David. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, uh, thank you, Elizabeth. Uh, it's been a pleasure and look forward to speaking to you all again uh, soon next time. Um, thanks also to our listeners for tuning in and any comments or questions, just drop me a line on pdaily, P-D-A-L-Y, at albalogistics.com. So keep well and stay safe until next time. Bye.